The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who goes continually forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, as far as that psalm, he who goes forth, you know, in tears, sowing, will come back rejoicing with sheaves with him. That can be applied in the concept of missionary work. People that go overseas and they literally weep through their jobs. They have, some of them go and they never get a convert ever. Some of them go and they do, but they leave their families. They leave their lives behind. They go overseas and they serve in various places. Some of them are very harsh, very cruel. And let me read it again and think of a missionary when I read this to you. It says there, uh, I went a little too far, didn't I, Charlie? It says, um, those who sow in tears, think of them going out in tears, shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, we've got a lot of missionaries that we know personally and that we love, and they're doing these things for the gospel of Christ. And we need to remember them. We need to remember them in our prayers, and we need to, at times, send them a note, send them an email. Send them a letter if you can, and just let them know that they're, they're appreciated. We're in number 17 today. I'm going to do the whole chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, twelve rods. Write each man's name on his rod, and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader according to their father's houses, twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron and of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel. And they looked and each man took his rod. And the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? There are certain things in scripture which are taken as an axiom. One of them is creation. In Hebrews 11, the author actually speaks about creation, and he takes the whole shebang of the Genesis account at face value. Things seen were not created from things visible. Now, one could argue that to a point, but the word visible truly encompasses all matter, even if we can't see it with our naked eyes. If it is matter, it is at some point visible. He speaks about Cain and Abel as if the story about them is really true. And the fact that there is a Cain and an Abel by default means that they came from someone else. 
meaning an Adam and an Eve. He speaks about Enoch being translated and not seeing death. And he says it as if there is no question of the reliability of that. The story of Noah and the flood. Yep. Like Jesus, he accepted the narrative as written. I could go on, but you get the point. Jesus repeatedly spoke about the absolute truth of Scripture, even arguing with Israel's leaders about single words, which had the most significant of importance to theology. And those who authored the New Testament write about the Old with the same absolute assurance that the stories there are true and reliable, even down to some of the most incredible stories of all. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 9, it's verses 1 through 5. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid with, on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In just those five verses, the author indicates that the sanctuary written about by Moses was real. If one part of that detail is true, then the rest surely must be as well. And he later speaks quite a bit more about it. He also says that those things on earth were copies and shadows of the things in heaven, meaning there really is a heaven. And what that is like is represented by those earthly things. And then he goes on to say that those earthly things actually prefigure Christ. Thus, the heavenly man is the anticipation of the earthly pictures. The author then speaks about the golden pot with the manna in it, confirming the account of manna in the wilderness. Yes, it really happened. Even Jesus spoke of that in John chapter 6. Then more, he also writes in these verses about Aaron's rod that budded. Well, isn't that the cat's meow? A lifeless rod of wood actually comes to life. And it doesn't happen by being grafted into a living branch. And more, it doesn't just come to life, but it literally flourishes overnight. Is this story to be believed? Well, the author of Hebrews seemed to believe it. As you read scripture, it is time to ask yourself, what do you believe? Is God making up stories which are allegorical? Or does he expect us to accept his word as true? The author of Hebrews, probably the Apostle Paul, certainly believed these stories were not only true, but that they are the very words of God and thus wholly reliable. Whether you can stomach it or not, I believe in a literal creation that literally came about in six days. I believe Enoch got translated to heaven without dying, as did Elijah the prophet. I believe that the flood of Noah swept away all life on earth except eight people. I believe that Aaron's rod budded. And I believe without any doubt at all that Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised to life by the power of God. And I believe that he did it even for me. Such wonderful and truthful stories are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is rods before the Lord. It's verses one through seven. Verse one. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the chapter starts with the standard address most often used to begin a new thought. The context should be remembered, however. The previous chapter involved the incident with Korah in his rebellion and attempt to usurp the priesthood. That was dealt with magnificently by the Lord as he swallowed up the tents of some of the offenders and as he sent out his fire to burn up others. After that, the people of the congregation came forward and accused Moses and Aaron of having killed the people of the Lord. That began a plague which then needed Aaron's intercession in order to stop it. Then it was stopped completely. Where death prevailed, the mediator's intercession arrested it. What a picture of Christ's perfect intercession for his people. With those details recalled, the Lord has words to convey which will demonstrate that what occurred was from him and that Aaron is, in fact, chosen to mediate between the Lord and the people. 
Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house. What appears simple to follow brings in numerous questions. First, a mate or rod is used as the symbol of a household. This was seen, for example, in Genesis 38, where the authority of Judah's house was assumed by Tamar. This was taken in pledge and included his signet, cord, and staff, or his rod. Thus, when the term mate is used, it speaks of a literal rod, but it is also a metonym. It speaks of the tribe itself, just as Hollywood means a place, but it also stands for the movie industry. But the rod also is used figuratively as a support of life, just as bread. We say often bread is the staff of life. Here, the children of Israel are to provide a rod from each father's house. The house then would be the main tribe, such as Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and so on. One would assume that this is the staff of an individual who is to represent his clan. But it is argued by some that this isn't an old staff, but rather all are freshly cut staffs from the same tree and then designated to represent the house. The Hebrew is not specific, but I have always assumed that it would be an old rod already designated. However, being dogmatic is simply to bark into the wind. Another complication lies in the next words. Verse 2 continues, All their leaders, according to their father's houses, twelve rods. The leaders, according to their father's houses, are probably the individuals named in chapter 1. The term is nasi, or prince, and it was also used of the 12 spies who went to search out Canaan. And so the term can mean any type of leader, but these are probably those most distinguished during the census. But it then says 12 rods. This brings in the question as to whether this is inclusive of Aaron's rod, as noted in verse 3, and that Ephraim and Manasseh are joined together in one rod, or are there 12 rods presented along with Aaron's 13th? At times, the two tribes under Joseph are listed as being one people, such as in Deuteronomy 27, verse 12. Again, being dogmatic would be a rough position to cling to. I would personally go with 12 plus 1, and I will tell you that when Doug did his painting for the week for the sermon, which is now on the website, he did 12 plus 1 as well. And it is a beautiful, beautiful painting. I hope you take a time to look at it and to send him a note, because it's, it, it's really marvelous. Anyway, this would eliminate any doubt that could later arise that one sub-tribe, if you could call it that, was purposefully left out when it should not have been. Jacob specifically adopted those two sons, and his name was upon them. Deuteronomy 27 is a completely different situation, which does not call for the same precision and care as this. Verse 2 continues, write each man's name on his rod. The word is katav, and it indicates to write. But that writing can be with a pen on the surface or with a knife as in an engraving. The Lord is said to have written out the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone with his finger. Whatever way the inscription is made, it would be in a way which could not later be erased or leave any doubt about the authenticity of the particular rod. The name of the man in this case is representative of the tribe. Verse 3, and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. Almate Levi, on rod Levi. As you can see, there is the difficulty of whether this is one of 12 or if it is in addition to the 12. No matter what, Aaron's rod is designated by the Lord as the head of the tribe of Levi. He is Moses' older brother, and the family of Kohath has been designated as the main tribe apart from birth order in order to represent Levi. It then will set aside any future dispute in regards to all of Levi's positions within the tribe. In writing Aaron's name, it is specifying that within Levi, there is a separating of the classes of those who descend from him, priestly Levites and non-priestly Levites. The specificity here is very similar to that of Ezekiel 37, where it says this, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. Here in Numbers, there are not to be three staffs of the subgroups of Levi, nor merely one staff for all of Levi without distinction, but rather one staff for Levi, and Aaron represents the entire tribe. 
It is an act of grace, then, to have been bestowed this distinction. As Aaron was from Kohath, the second son of Levi, the choice of his placement was of the Lord and not of natural descent. As the claim has been made that the entire congregation was holy, the Lord determined to show who was, in fact, holy for the priesthood. The burning of the 250 offenders still left a doubt in the people's minds. And so the Lord is preparing to settle this matter once and forever. Verse 3 continues, For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. This statement is given to confirm that Aaron's staff stood representative of the entire house of Levi, along with the single staff of the rods of the other heads of the father's house, meaning the main tribes. Verse 4, Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. Although a simple verse to understand, the words here actually give us insights into another question which has arisen elsewhere. That is, whether Moses actually went into the most holy place or not. Here he is told to place them into the tent of meeting, but more specifically, he is told to put them before the testimony. That is the Ark of the Covenant into which the tablets of the testimony were placed. That means in the most holy place. And so we can see that the restriction of entering this place only once a year and only with blood did not apply to Moses. He was given access to the Lord anytime. This is then confirmed with the words, where I meet with you. Moses went in to seek the Lord's counsel at his own will and also at the call of the Lord. As the Lord says, this is where he met with Moses. We don't need to speculate if it is outside the veil or not. Moses was granted a special dispensation to come before the Lord, unlike any other, including Israel's high priest. Verse 5, And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Here is the word parach. It speaks of the blossoming of a flower, the breaking forth or spreading of leprosy, and so on. It gives the sense of flourishing. And it is often translated in that manner, such as when a righteous man flourishes. What is promised is a miracle of no small significance. Whether the rod was cut and used for many years, or whether it was freshly cut to stand with a dozen other freshly cut rods, the impossibility of what will occur other than by divine intervention is absolutely certain. It is to be a miracle in its truest sense. And like all other miracles, it is to serve a purpose beyond the event itself. Verse 5 continues, Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel. Here is a word not seen since the time of the flood of Noah, shakak. It means to abate, just as the waters of the flood abated when God made the wind to pass over the earth. It comes from a root meaning to weave a trap, laying it up secretively. Thus, through that, the Lord is saying he will cause the complaints of the people to abate in such a way that they will never rise again, just as the waters of the flood were promised to never rise again in that manner. The complaints of the people will be secreted away. Verse 5 continues, which they make against you. The word you here is plural. The Lord has said that he would get the complaints of the children of Israel from off of him, but they are complaints which were directed to both Moses and Aaron. That was seen in the last section of the previous chapter with these words. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. This then reveals the purpose of what is directed. The authority of Moses and the word he transmits to the people, and which included Aaron's priestly authority, was to be forever solidified through this act. And these two things were certain even almost 1,500 years later. The authority of both of them was regarded as absolute at the time of Christ. For Moses, it is seen in the words such as Matthew chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And for Aaron, it is seen in the following words. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. 
Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Despite seemingly contradictory, though the law of Moses was often forgotten or disobeyed, the authority of the law and of its designated appointees was not forgotten. This is actually not uncommon, though. We have laws which are forgotten or are simply broken in our nation, but the authority of the law itself and the authority of those who sit in positions of authority within the law are still recognized as such. Here the Lord is settling the matter of this authority henceforward, just as the Civil War of the United States settled it for those who thought to break themselves apart from it. Verse 6, So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece. Again, the account isn't specific. If these were tribal rods, which had been maintained by the people, or if they were freshly cut rods, then designated for each tribe by affixing the name of the leader. Either way, though, each would be distinct enough to recognize by one and by all. There would be no way that Moses could manufacture a false miracle in this matter. Each rod was, verse 6 going on, for each leader, according to their father's houses, 12 rods. The words follow closely with those of verse 2. They show an obedience to what was directed, but again, it is not known if there are 11 now plus 1, or if there are 12 rods, which will then be added to by Aaron, making 13. The Latin Vulgate specifically said 12 plus 1, but that is not made perfectly evident in the Hebrew, and it is not confirmed or denied in the next words either. Verse 6 continues, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. If this had simply said, and the rod of Aaron, it would indicate 13, but it says, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. The word is betok, and it signifies in the midst of. 12 or 13. And so if we get dogmatic, we might get bit later. Verse 7, And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. The words follow closely after verse 4, and they show that what was directed was also followed through with the New King James Version. Following after the King James Version incorrectly translates this in the next verse by calling it the tabernacle of witness. Rather, it is the tent of the testimony. It is the same word, edut, used in verses 4 and 10, which are translated as testimony. In a lack of consistent translation, it is extremely hard to follow the narrative properly. The reason for calling it the tent of the testimony <laughs> instead of the more common tent of meeting is because it is the testimony which establishes both the law of Moses and the Aaronic priesthood, which are on trial here. Moses is not conducting meetings with the Lord at this time. When he does, they call it the tent of meeting. Rather, the Lord is making a defense for the law which Israel agreed to and for the authority of those as revealed in that law. Hence, it is the tent of the testimony. The specificity of wording clues us in to what is on the mind of the Lord and how he is dealing with the affairs which arise. Life from death? How can it be? Nothing such as this has ever been seen before. And yet our eyes haven't failed. We really did see. It is as if heaven has opened a brand new door. What does it mean that life has come from death and that one who was dead is now seen alive again? Into his crucified body has returned life's breath. What does this mean for the sons of men? Oh God, we know that what we have seen is certainly true. And in Christ, death's door has been swung open wide in the giving of Jesus, your son, great things you did do. And because of him, we shall with you eternally abide. I was asked last night by our guests, he said, where do you get those poems from? Do you type those or do you get them somewhere? I said, no, I type them. I, I sit down. As a matter of fact, it's the most brutal part of the day because I've typed the sermon. I've gone through sometimes eight or 10 or 12 hours of study. And then I do the introduction and I do the final closing afterward. So I want them to match each other and what's being said. And then finally, I do the poems. And I will admit that once in a while, I'm so tired that I cheat and I go back and I find an old poem and I copy it and put it in there, which you don't even know about. Yes. Now we do. Well, I try not to do that often, but usually you get a new one. And obviously this one has to be new because it matches the uh, surrounding story. Anyway, our second thought today is a sign against the rebels. It's verses 8 through 13. Verse 8, now it came to pass on the next day. 
These were mate, or rods, used as tribal insignia. Regardless as to their age, they would be single rods, stripped bare, and without root or branch on them. And yet, the words here say, Vehi me machorat, and it came to pass on the next day. It only means this, and it cannot mean anything except the day following that mentioned in the preceding verse. And so what will now be described is truly miraculous. Verse 8 going on, that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. As with the preceding verse, the Hebrew says the tent of the testimony. It is the testimony which is being highlighted in this passage, being mentioned four times in just 13 verses. After this, the term will be used once in the next chapter in regards to the duties of the Levites in relation to Aaron, and then not again until the book of Joshua. Verse 8 continues, And behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted. Out of death has come life. As noted earlier, the mate or rod is at times used figuratively as indicating a support of life such as bread. Here, the rod of Aaron is emblematic of Christ, from whom life comes because of his death. Aaron's priesthood is confirmed through the life which came from that which was dead. Likewise, Christ's priesthood came about when he proved his right to the position of high priest through the fulfillment of the law and in the introduction of the new covenant in his shed blood. From his death, life springs forth. It is his priestly duties and his alone that provides life to man. The implication of the words that Levi's rod had sprouted is that this is a unique occurrence which was not seen in the other rods. Only through the rod of Aaron, which looks forward to Christ, can life come. All other rods remained as dead as when they were severed from the tree. As far as the sprouting, it is the same word, parach, that the Lord had said would occur in verse 5. The rod had gone from a clean staff of wood to that which had broken forth and flourished. But there is more. Verse 8 continues, and put forth buds, ve'yotse parach, and brought out buds. This definitively shows that there is a force behind the event. One might dismiss a rod sprouting as if there was enough life in it to put out a sprout. But nothing further could be expected. This rod has sprouted and put forth buds. Verse 8 continues, had produced blossoms, veyatsets seats, and had blossomed blossoms. One can feel the excitement in the words as if the marvel is more than words can adequately express, but which must be mentally visualized by the reader. But there is yet more. Verse 8 going on, and yielded ripe almonds. Veyigmol shekadim. The word gamal comes from a root signifying to treat another person well or ill. It is used to describe the weaning of a child or a just reward, such as when the psalmist says, the Lord has rewarded me, gamal, rewarded me according to my righteousness. It is an end result based on events which led to it. Thus, when an almond tree has fruit, it is a reward of the time of production necessary for the fruit to come forth. If an almond tree could speak, it might say, the fruit are the reward of my time and labors. There is the sense then of the Lord dealing bountifully with the rod of Aaron in putting forth shaked or almonds. That word comes from shakad, which means to watch over or be on the lookout. The reason the almond is so named is because of its unusually long cycle from bud to fruit, which encompasses, believe it or not, the entire harvest season in Israel. The bud develops from November to February. The blossom period goes from February to March, the earliest of all of the trees. And from March to June, the almond transform from blossom unto hall. And we saw that this morning. I was sitting in that chair right there where Brian is sitting, and we were talking to Sergio in Israel. And I was showing them Sergio, and he's talking and walking around the property. And the almonds right now are at a state before they have become into the hull. But they're a fruit. And you can pick the entire fruit and eat it, just as if it was a kiwi or something, or, you know, some fruit that you just pick and eat. It doesn't have the hard part on it. Now imagine, it's edible at that point, and yet that hard part still has to get hard. And then finally, it goes into that point, Okay. It goes from the blossom to the hall. The harvest season then goes from August to October. At that time, the cycle begins again. Thus, the almond watches over 
the entire year from beginning to end. That's why it's called the Shaked, is because it comes from Shakad to watch, and the almond does that. It watches over the entire cycle of the year of Israel. And yet the miracle of the rod of Aaron is that the entire cycle was accomplished in one single night. <coughs> it signifies that the Lord was watching over the rod of Aaron, and thus over the Aaronic priesthood. And in turn, it is a witness to Aaron that his priesthood was to be in constant watch over their duties, day unto day and throughout the year. In Ecclesiastes, the blossoming of the almond tree is said to reflect the aged condition of man. The almond blossoms are white, just as an aged person's hair is white. Following on with that, white hair is reflective of honor in the book of Leviticus chapter 19. And in the book of Jeremiah, we read scripture's last use of the almond. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. He's making a pun for Jeremiah to understand what is going on. God uses real things in nature to show us life applications about who Jesus is. The stone is Christ the stone, the water, the water of life, and we could go through hundreds of them. And we have gone through hundreds already and we'll go through so many more. But this is the significance of the almond. The miracle here is similar to that of the making of wine from water by Jesus. An entire process was brought from conception to full maturity in an instant, as if creation itself had taken place. To deny the Genesis creation account is no less egregious of an error than it is to deny the giving forth of fruit by the rod of Aaron or bringing forth wine from the water jars of Cana by the same Lord. But the symbolism for now is revealed in Christ. Not only did he come forth from death, but he is the one who initiates and who sees through until its completion the entire span of the covenant which he has introduced. The Lord began the covenant of Moses, which included the priesthood of Aaron, and he saw it through to its bearing of fruit on the cross of Calvary, thus ending that covenant. He further then introduced the new covenant, and he will see it through until its end. However, as his covenant is said to be eternal, there is no end to be anticipated. His priesthood is eternal, and his people have the promise of an eternal walk before God with him, watching over them during the entire endless expanse of time. This is actually spoken of by David in the 110th Psalm, where he first uses the term mate, or rod, of the Lord's strength out of Zion. He then says that this will lead to the priesthood of Christ being on the order of a man named Melchizedek, which is then explained by the author of Hebrews as being an eternal priesthood. Here are David's words from the 110th Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will send the rod of your strength out of Zion. That's the word there, mate. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If you don't understand what that's talking about, go read the Hebrews commentary that I've been doing for the past 250 days or so. We're up to chapter 11. I typed a verse 39 this morning. We're almost done with chapter 11. We've got a couple more chapters and we'll be done. But you will understand the details of what's going on here in a unique way that most people will never grasp. It is a beautiful, beautiful epistle. David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke forth words which looked back to Melchizedek, which are sprinkled with hints of Christ's priesthood from right here in Numbers, and then which look forward to that eternal position described in Hebrews and which will be realized forever and ever. Adam Clark poetically looks to the budding, blossoming, and fruit-bearing of the rod as representing a believer's life in Jesus Christ right now. Here's what Adam Clark says. The buds of good desires, the blossoms of holy resolutions and promising professions, and the ripe fruit of faith, love, and obedience all spring from the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And this is true. Because of Christ's ministry, our lives in Christ are made possible. Verse 9, then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel. 
The same word, veyotse, or and brought out from the previous verse is used again. The Lord, through the rod, brought out buds, which produced blossoms and almonds. Moses has now brought out the rods from before the Lord after his miraculous work and revealed what he did to all the people. The Lord accomplishes the miracle and Moses reveals the miracle to the people. It is reflective of Christ, the man who, through the power of the Lord, revealed the work of the Lord to the people of Israel. He filled both roles, being the God-man, the Lord incarnate. Verse 9 continues, And they looked, and each man took his rod. And they is referring to all the children of Israel. Whoever was present, be it only the leaders as representatives, or any who desired to see, the proof of the miracle was made manifest to Israel. Nobody could doubt that an amazingly marvelous miracle had been revealed, and nobody could doubt its significance. The Lord was watching from moment to moment over the position of Moses and Aaron and in regards to the authority that they possessed. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony. The rod of Aaron is not mentioned again in the Old Testament. What happened to it is unknown except as is mentioned in extra-biblical writings. However, it is mentioned in Hebrews 9 verse 4 where the author states that the rod along with the golden pot with manna and the tablets of the covenant were all kept in the ark. That was our text verse today. In this, we have several pictures of Christ in one. He is the giver of the law seen in the tablets of the testimony. He is the embodiment of the law seen in the ark. He is the manna which was said to be rested in the ark. When we come to Christ, we are thus rested in Christ and our status before God changes. It says in Colossians 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So much for loss of salvation. You are in Christ. That would show a great incompetence in God to say that you can lose your salvation when you're hidden in his son. And in the rod of Aaron, Christ is the one who watches over and accomplishes the entire process of priestly duties for his people from the beginning to its completion, which will never come. We will be going on with him as our high priest forever and forever and forever. We can only speculate on what happened to the rod. As Hebrews tells us that it was placed in the ark, and as 1 Kings 8 verse 9 says that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets at the time of Solomon, then this rod and the jar of manna may have been removed and lost when the ark was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5. But that is only speculation. To be dogmatic would be to pointlessly wag one's tail. What matters in scripture is the account at hand. For the time being, it was to be brought back before the testimony, specifically, verse 10 continues, to be kept as a sign against the rebels. La mishmeret le ot livne meri. For a charge, for a sign to the sons of rebellion. A charge is something to be maintained as a guard watching over his patrol. An ot, or a sign, is something that stands as representative of something else. Thus, the rod of Aaron was to be kept as a guard and to be brought forth as a sign against the sons of Meri, or rebellion, if needed. That is a new word coming from Mara, meaning contentious or rebellious. Should they come forth in this manner again, the rod could be brought forth as a sign of the Lord's approval of Moses and Aaron and against the rebellious faction. No record of that ever being needed is recorded in Scripture. Further, this is hinted at next, verse 10 continues, that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. The word taluna, or grumbling, was introduced at the time of the giving of manna in Exodus 16, when the people grumbled about their hunger. It was seen six times in that chapter, once in Numbers 14, when the people complained about not entering Canaan after the bad report from the spies, and it was used twice in today's passage. This is its last use in Scripture. In verse 5, the Lord said that he would rid himself of the complaints of the people which they made against Aaron and Moses. So it is. With the departure of this word, so the Lord rid himself of what the word signifies. The Lord said that this was to keep the people from dying, at least in this manner, it came about. There are plenty of other ways to needle the Lord, and Israel in its continued history would seek out new ways to do so. But the complaints against his established lawgiver and high priest are ended. Verse 11, thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Just as Moses is later recorded as a faithful servant in all of God's house, 
So he accomplished this task as directed by the Lord. The rod would remain before the Lord and before the testimony of the Lord as a charge and a sign. Verse 12. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, surely we die. We perish. We all perish. Behold, we have expired. We have perished. All of us, we have perished. The words are quickly stated without any connecting words and reveal utter desperation at the situation. The word translated as perished is gava. It gives the sense of breathing out one's last. Though self-inflicted, there has been one catastrophe after another. The people continue to fail to understand that the law is written and it is binding upon them. They keep going around looking for an exit to it, as if it is something that is more of a hindrance to be cast off than a permanent and burdensome yoke, which is forever tied to them. But this is exactly what the apostles called the law in Acts chapter 15. Paul calls it a bondage of slavery in Galatians. The pulpit commentary rightly states, These are the last wailings of the great storm which had raged against Moses and Aaron, which had roared so loudly and angrily at its height, which was now sobbing itself out in the petulant despair of defeated and disheartened men, cowed indeed, but not convinced, fearful to offend, yet not loving to obey. They are right in saying that they will all expire and perish. Leviticus has told them that the man who does the things of the law will live by them. They have tried to get away from the law, and they have been destroyed. They will try to live out the law in the many generations to come, and they will all die under the law. But the law also provides avenues to obtain mercy, such as the Day of Atonement. Israel is being schooled on their need for Jesus Christ, and we are being schooled through Israel to stay away from the law of Moses and head directly to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Kol hakarev hakarev. All the approaching, the approaching. The words are in the typical Hebrew way of providing emphasis. They are exclaiming that without fail, coming near means death. And here the term is Mishkan Yehovah, or Tabernacle of Yehovah. It has only been used once so far, in verse 16.9, when Moses spoke to Korah about his disobedience toward the Lord. Here the people moan that whoever comes near it must die. This is untrue in one sense. It is only if a person approached the Lord's tabernacle who was not a priest who was to die. However, it is true in another sense, because the tabernacle of the Lord extends to cover all of the people of Israel due to their nearness to him in covenant relationship. If they were defiled through sin, they would, in fact, die. This was true anywhere within the camp of the Lord, and that will be dealt with in chapter 19. For now, though, their thoughts stem directly from the disobedience of Korah's rebellion. For any but those designated to come near the tabernacle of the Lord, it is an absolutely true statement. It is not true, though, for the priests or the Levites in the proper performance of their duties. And it is exactly those duties which will be laid out in the coming verses of chapter 18, including the restrictions and penalties for those who come near but who are not authorized. Verse 13 finishes with, Shall we all utterly die? Ha'im tamnu ligvoah? The exact meaning of these words is debated, and so one should not be overly dogmatic and snarl at others about it. But the word tamam means to finish or to complete, and so the intent may be, shall we ever finish expiring? The question is asked in relation to coming near the tabernacle of the Lord. The tabernacle of the Lord is his dwelling place. It is the place of access to him, and it is thus representative of heaven. Only certain people were allowed to come near and only under certain conditions of purity and at set times according to law. The people had attempted to go around Aaron and access the Lord without him, and that proved fatal. But the people's question now signifies a desire to still come near the tabernacle of the Lord nonetheless. It is the constant condition of man to want to draw near to God. This is what religion is. It is an attempt to draw near to him. And there are lots of religions out there claiming that their way makes it possible. However, God, not man, determines what access to him will be like. It is not by our will, 
but by Christ. And so to bring an answer to the question, shall we ever finish expiring? Christ came. We saw in Exodus and again in Leviticus, and so far it is continued in Numbers that the Mishkan Yehovah or Tabernacle of Yehovah intricately and absolutely pictures Christ in every single detail. And that is why in John 1.14, it says that he, Jesus, came and tabernacled among us because the people could not draw near to the tabernacle of Jehovah. Guess what? The tabernacle of Jehovah came near to them. It is his life which brings about the access that man has in every culture and in every age desired and attempted to make possible through their own efforts and means. But the impossibility of that is found in one three-letter word, sin. Our sin has separated us from the Creator. But our Creator took care of that in the giving of His Son, who became sin, meaning our sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Imagine that. Access is restored. We have a mediator who makes that possible, and it is granted to any who will just believe. When we opened today, I told you that I believed the words of the Bible. That is because in it is found the cure to our, and I mean our, all of us, every person on this planet, our defect. It is found in Jesus. And so if you've never taken the time to simply call out to Jesus and say, yep, I'm one of those. I have that defect. I've done wrong. And as I tell people all the time, if you don't believe that sin is inherent in people, we talked about this a day ago. Just look at your children. You didn't have to teach them to do wrong, did you? I mean, they knew it from the first breath they took. I'm going to push this guy's buttons until he goes insane, right? But you have to teach them to do right. That's how infectious sin is in us. It's that bad. But Christ came to take away that sin from every person, every person on this planet that will call on him in faith. And that is God's plan, and that is his program. As I said, everybody all around the world is working their way to God. There is only one expression of faith that has ever been documented in human history that doesn't follow that model. Only one, and that is biblical Christianity. I understand that I deserve God's wrath. I understand that I have sinned against the Lord, and I understand that he has done every single thing necessary for me to be reconciled to him. God has done the work. The Lord alone. Salvation is of the Lord. It says right there in the book of Jonah. It doesn't say salvation is of your efforts. If you are trying to live out your life under the law of Moses, you will fail and you will stand condemned before the Lord. And if you're already saved and you're just trying to do it to be pleasing to him, you will fail and you will lose your rewards. Rest in Christ, trust in Christ, and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Okay? I got a closing verse for you from Hebrews 7. It's verses 18 and 19. For on one hand, talk about the law. Speaking of the law of Moses here. On one hand, there is an annulling. That means ending, finishing, done. Annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Imagine that. A Jew, while the temple was still standing, wrote that the law that they are observing down there in Jerusalem is weak and unprofitable and it is annulled. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Thank you, Jesus. Next week is Numbers 18, verses 1 through 19. The Lord willing, we will continue the chapter until it is done. But next week is the Levitical priesthood. Part 1. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 34th number sermon. The Lord asks you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay. All right. We talked about the almond today. I told you about the cycle of it and I told you about where it's found in the Bible and the last use of it in the Old Testament is in the book of Jeremiah. Where is it mentioned? The almond in the New Testament. Nobody. It's not! The only place that it's mentioned implicitly is in Aaron's rod that budded, but it is not mentioned in the New Testament. Okay? I got a poem for you. 
Nobody gets a Maserati. I'm going to drive this baby home myself today. It was sneaky. But I, I got you questioning it. Now you'll never get that wrong again. Life from death. And the, take care, Darla. We'll have you in prayer. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was to him then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and get from them, from each father's house, a rod. All their leaders, according to their father's houses, 12 rods. Write each man's name on his rod, even if his name is Todd. And you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house by and by. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting, so you shall do before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom, so it shall do. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece, as told to do, for each leader according to their father's houses, twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods too. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness according to his word. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, so he did do. And behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds too. Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord after he had a look to all the children of Israel. And they looked and each man his rod took. And the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony. And here is why to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. Thus did Moses just as commanded him the Lord. So he did according to his word. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, surely we die. We perish. We all perish was their cry. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of the rod of Aaron, life from death, picturing the initiation, the establishment, and the eternality of the greater priesthood of Christ our Lord. Thank you for that. And Lord, you know the people that we have mentioned that uh, have got troubles and trials, including Darla who just walked out, and we're thankful for Jack on his birthday tomorrow and all of the other people that are suffering with trials and troubles. Lord, please remember them. Be with them and get them through their times of affliction and pain and sorrow or whatever it is that is hindering them from having a happy relationship with you and rejoicing in you because it can hamper hamper our ability to be joyful. And Lord, we would ask that that would not be the case. But your will be done. We know that you are in control of all things and we leave them in your capable hands knowing that this is so. And so we just commit to you the week ahead asking that you bless us and take care of us according to your wisdom. And we would certainly pray that the day would be soon when you come to take us out of here. But once again, your will be done. We praise you, we glorify you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.